So we are very honored to be here with Daniel Strickland, who is so many things. Brought up in the Salvation Army, a major in the Salvation Army, husband's a major in the Salvation Army. They've got three children, 18, 10 and 8. She has been pioneer of so many different organizations and global movements to do with sex tra trafficking, to do with spirituality, to do with justice issues, to do with poverty, family, and so on. So first of all, welcome, yes. Daniel, and thank, thank you, you so, so much. much you would have been at Focus this year, our, our church holiday, and you came a few years ago, and it was a memorable occasion. It's wonderful. For me, too. I really love uh, all that you're doing and HTB's influence in the world and locally. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. Oh, thank you, Daniel. Well, please, could you tell us a little bit about your family, where you grew up and what where faith was for you in those, those early years? Yeah, that's a loaded question. Uh, both my parents, and this is a really fascinating thing about my background, but both of my parents were orphans. So my mother was a foster kid uh, and came from just a very abusive uh, household and then was placed with sort of extended family, but still very abusive uh, home, really toxic. Mm -hmm. And my dad was uh, sold illegally as a baby in this weird undercover uh, <laughs> baby ring. And um, so both of them grew up in these really difficult circumstances in, in uh, poverty and also in cycles of abuse and abandonment rejection. Yeah. And the Salvation Army in two different towns in Eastern Canada were knocking on doors strategically in poor neighborhoods looking for kids to welcome and to include in the family of God. And they found my parents separately. And both of my parents testify, you know, so my mom would have been around 10, uh, 11, and around the same age as my dad. And both of them testified a feeling for the first time, welcome and finding family or home. And so they found Jesus, they found belonging, and then they found each other. And so they were 17 and 18 when they got married, just to kind of exit their tragic circumstances. Wow. And, um, and launched into this new life with really the only family they really had, which was the family, the tribal belonging of the Salvation Army. I always joke about uh, in Canada, there's this famous night of the week that was hockey night in Canada, and everyone would watch the hockey game together. And everyone would usually have a team that you would cheer for, you know, and you would always stick with that team. But in my house, I would go into the family room and say to my dad, who are we cheering for tonight? And my dad would tell me who the underdog was. Oh, not amazing. And we were all, I mean, it was just the ethos of our family. We were always on the side of the underdog. And as a result of that sort of family history, we understood that there was no, you know, poverty cycle that couldn't be broken. You know, so there was a lot of hope. There was yeah. no one too lost, no one too hard, no one too left out, that yeah. God couldn't break the cycle and that this inclusive, beautiful family of God couldn't uh, interrupt and bring about a different trajectory. And throughout your time, you have fought against injustices of different types. Just say a little bit about that. Uh, clearly, you had the motivation to do that and you've done it. Just say, what are the areas that you've seen of the underdog, the injustices, and what, what you've been involved in? A large part of my adult ministry life has been church planting in inner cities, in places that are, you know, impoverished, or at least in many ways, economically impoverished and suffering in some regards. And then that 
led very naturally to fight against sexual exploitation of women and and boys. So I started to move towards more advocacy and justice-based approaches to stop trafficking, to end extreme poverty, to fight against systemic injustices. And that took me, you know, from Canada, downtown east side of Vancouver is kind of where my training ground and all of that was. My family, after the birth of my first son, we moved into a drug addicted community for six years. And then we moved to Australia to help launch a social justice department for the Salvation Army, just to kind of reinvigorate the wells of the Salvation Army's rich heritage of social justice from its origin stories in England. So I did brothel chaplaincy for many, many years, organized teams of people that would go into massage parlors and brothels and just be friend, just be present, be light, be possibility, be hope, uh, be a friend. Because, you know, one of the great fights against trafficking, of course, is the invisibility of the people involved in any injustice. Whenever there's an invisibility, people refuse to see you. It's the first injustice that happens. And so we just go in the opposite spirit. We choose to see. And anyway, this, this madame, very competent, strong, notorious for running three of these massage parlors and employing underage girls. And I said to her, you know, I'm... I'm really, why do you do this with your life? It seems like you are so gifted. You're obviously business savvy. You're smart. You're capable. You're strong. Like, you know, you're interesting. Why are you doing this with your life when you have so much to offer the world? And she looked at me like no one had ever said that to her before, like that she had something to offer the world. But she took me in a back room and she closed the door and she told me a story. She said, when I was 11 years old, I was raped by my father for the last time. I ran away from my home and I walked to this very street that this brothel's on with nowhere to go. And a guy in a truck pulled over and said he would give me a place for the night if I had sex with him. And she said, I turned my first trick when I was 11. I cried that whole night. I cried the whole next night. I cried the whole next night. And she said, when I got done crying, I made the very best with what I had been given. And then she looked me, she's filled with tears. First weakness I ever saw in her, just filled with tears. And she looked me in the eye and she said, where were you when I was 11? And you know how sometimes there are moments, you know, where the Holy Spirit will just amplify, you know, a disruption, just this question I couldn't shake. Where were you when I was 11? Where were you when I was 11? And I started to realize that that story was not unique. I had heard it hundreds of times, the same story over and over again. And I just allowed the Holy Spirit to really move me to be there when they're 11. Then we launched uh, Brave Global and we're mobilizing churches all around the world to reach girls before they're trafficked in response to the question. Yeah, that is amazing. And you, you're doing this extraordinary work, but you actually moved your whole family into these very difficult areas. How did you balance that? You know, it's one thing for you to to do that, to make the sacrifices, go into dark places. But how did you manage to cope and keep family normal by moving the whole family in, into these areas? It was really remarkable because we saw so often that these people that we had come to save, you know, these poor uh, struggling people were actually saving us mm-hmm. in so many ways. I mean, such a deeper spiritual connection to God you know, all of those beatitudes, which we just sort of think are these lovely lofty statements that Jesus makes, but really this right side up kingdom where when you do get to the end of yourself, you get to the beginning of God. 
And it was such a great education for us to realize that, you know, I often say, you know, I went to save the downtown east side and then the downtown east side saved me. Then what do you think are the biggest issues facing our world right now? What are the issues that you think, right, this is what the church needs to focus on right now? Well, I mean, I think that this move towards anti-racism is an unprecedented centuries old conversation that is in a suddenly moment. You know, we pray for this, don't we? We pray for these suddenlies, right? These Kairos moments. And I feel like the only way we could explain what's going on around the world, you know, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, you can look at the sky and discern the weather, but you can't look at the time and discern the the era you're living in. I think it's one of those moments in history where we need to look at the sky of the spiritual climate of the world and say, this is an era we're living in and people have been praying and working towards this for hundreds of years. And this is a suddenly. So I think the church should be paying attention. Yeah. And you've been out on the marches with your children. Yeah, I've been on some marches and uh, we made some signs and talked about it as our homeschool project, because, of course, that's happening right now and went down to just join in solidarity and be a voice and raise our voice. And actually, funny enough, both my boys were stopped by the news and they were interviewed. And my 10 year old hilariously enough had this Black Lives Matter sign. And so the news guy said, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you marching? And he looked at them kind of incredulously and he just said, Black Lives Matter? Like, are you blind? Like, can you not hear? (laughs) And then my eight-year-old beautifully said, Moses, his name is Moses, so it was very fitting. But he said, "Uh, the world's not fair. And all of the people that God created are not being treated equally, and I want a different world. That's what he said. Wow. You know, what do you say to, to people who just feel the world has turned upside down? I don't know what to do anymore. Yeah, I think we're in danger of that, aren't we? Just even in terms of the capacity we have as human beings to deal with our own trauma in this COVID-19 realities. I would say that, you know, it feels like a lot of things, but it's only one thing, really, that we're always fighting. And it's injustice, it's darkness, it's the demonic forces, right? And the invitation for us Christians, of course, are just, we're just so filled with hope. I mean, resurrection power is so much greater. You know, nobody puts blinds up to protect themselves from the darkness. That's how powerful the light is, right? So we're the children of the light. So we do not have to despair. There is no sense. There shouldn't even be a hint of hopelessness in terms of what Jesus has in mind for resurrecting the world, for redeeming all things everywhere. So I think in one sense, I would say to the children of God, you know, you're the children of the light. Don't be afraid. Never be afraid. Faith is not just something we believe. Faith is something we practice. It's something we do. It has an outworking in the way that we do relationships and the way that we do our lives. So this is a, un, also an incredible opportunity to practice our faith. And so I've been saying to people all the time, this is not like an additional thing. Like there's not our faith and then all these things happening out here that we have to pay attention to. This is just one thing. This is just how can we practice our faith right now in a way that will bring redemption, that will bring uh, light, that will bring the kingdom of God. I would say, you know, that Ephesians 3 scripture has been so guiding me over the last couple of years of my life where you become deeply rooted in the love of God. And I think that's such a beautiful image of even this justice that God is calling us to is we become so deeply rooted in the love of God that then this love grows out of us like this beautiful tree. And we can actually do justice and we can do practice and we can help others because we're so deeply rooted in the love of God that knows no end, 
you know, the capacity to reach the nations is in his heart. So I usually say, do what's right in front of you. Do the thing that's right in front of you, a thing that is in front of you to do. Just do that and it will lead you the way that, that God intends you to go. Your latest book is Better mm-hmm. Together. What is, why did you write that and what's your passion there? Of course, it was related also to the Me Too movement. It was that movement. And I actually think one of the first things to break after the fall was the relationship between men and women. So it's not just a, an issue, although it presents itself as these little things in society or in culture, but it's actually right at the heart of who we are and who we're called to be as humans and even how we understand God. I mean, it, was, it came at that moment and that movement was happening and, and how you yes. right. Yeah, I mean, millions and millions and millions of women finally just telling the truth over social media and then the church sort of thinking it might be spared, you know, mm-hmm. which I think even in this anti-racism movement, you know, it's the wrong prayer that we would be spared. The right prayer would be that we would be the example, right? We would be the ones that would lead with humility and truth, with nothing to fear, in transparency and in, in resurrection power. So it was that movement. And um, yeah, and it's still, you know, I always say racism and sexism is the same intersection of prejudice. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of overlapping principles and things that we need to rediscover, even conversations about power that have been mind-blowing for me. The research in this book was really a really great learning for me. I just, you know, my mind was blown in so many ways. You're talking to the HTB congregation and also lots of the the church plants will be joining us uh, during these weeks over the summer and joining us on these occasions. So what message would you want to leave with us? Yeah, first of all, I would just say thank you for the way that you're following after Jesus and the way that you are intentionally pursuing this life of faith and meaning in the world. Thanks for not being afraid. Thanks for the example that you've been and the hope that you've been in so many people around the world. I mean, just such a beautiful, I thank God for you all the time. Like the apostle Paul, when I think of you, I'm, I'm filled with joy. And I would say just like some of these little things that have been capturing my heart these days to root yourself and establish yourself in the love of God, he will not fail. His love will not fail you. There is no place you can go that is outside the love of God. And to allow that love of God to be the main driver in all of the things that you do, uh, you will not go wrong if you let love lead you. Brilliant. You are brilliant. Yeah. Oh, Danielle, thank you so, so much. Yeah. yeah, it was a joy to be with you guys. So, very, so very grateful powerful. to you. Very, very powerful. Thank you. Yeah.